morning. Uh, back to the camera here, talking away. Uh, I have some good news, though. I think that it will probably not be long that we are live. So I don't want to go much more into that. I just want to say that quickly to give you some hope that you're not sitting here looking at this set anymore. <laughs> Maybe you love it. It wears me out. And, uh, and I'm able to preach live and not to this camera. But for now, I'm blessed that we have this opportunity. We all are, but at the same time, that day looks like it's coming very soon. I don't want to say more than that for now, but do pray about that. Um, you might pop open the internet and see us in a whole different way here very soon. So be praying about that. Um, we are jumping back in the Word. You don't have a Bible, grab it. You can pause it. That is one of the beauties of uh, video. Pause it, whatever you got to do, but go get your Bible. And we're going to jump in. Uh, we'll actually be in Acts chapter 8 today. We're moving uh, on from 2 Corinthians where we have been. We finished it, so now we're moving into something else. Um, before we go into that, though, let me just remind you this is not church. This is me preaching to this camera in front of my face that I am grateful for, but will be happy to move on from in the days ahead. <laughs> but... But uh, this is just me preaching there. Church happens when we come together as a family, man. That's when Salt River Community Church happens. That is tonight. We'd love for you to come. You can hit us up on social media, uh, through email, through the website, however you want to do it. We'll tell you how to find us. We're in Tempe, Arizona. We'd love for you to come hang out with us. Uh, we just basically lay into the Word, the same thing I'm preaching, and then we'll... Uh, so if you have questions or you want to know more about all this, you can come come tonight and ask whatever you want. Um, I know you won't be the only one with questions, I promise. And then uh, we pray, spend a lot of time praying, spend a lot of time eating, hanging out, and uh, just being family. So yeah, love for you to come be part of that. Today, though, like I said, we're going to move on into something else. Whenever we finish a series like we've been doing with Second Corinthians, we've been in it for weeks and weeks and weeks. So when we finish that... We usually like to take a little quick pause and kind of revisit what we believe as a church, Salt River Community Church. What do we believe? Um, what what are we about? Or as I'm calling this, who are we as Salt River Community Church? Who who are we? Um, we're going to look at it in three different aspects: salvation and baptism. That's what we're going to look at today: salvation and baptism. And then next week we'll look at church. Like, what do we believe church is? We call ourselves a church. What does that mean? What does that mean to us? What should what should that mean to someone else? And uh, you know, how does it work? Who's the boss? <laughs> All that kind of stuff. And then uh, the next week, mission. Like our mission, which is making disciples. What does that mean? What is a disciple? How, how does one come to be recognized as that? Can you be a disciple and um, not be a believer? Can you be a believer and not be a disciple? All these kind of questions. We'll hit these things over the next few weeks. But like I say, today it's salvation and baptism. And I'm calling this go in public. So um, you'll, you'll see why as we walk through it. But when we say something, it's, this is something that we believe. When we say that at Salt River Community Church, just understand that we're not saying, hey, we've all collectively heard from some guy who said something and so we now believe what that person said. We're not saying this is how we were raised. We're not saying that. What we are saying is that we trust that this is in God's word and we believe God's word to be from God and therefore trustworthy. So in other words, we're saying God's word says this and that's what we believe. Okay? So, according to him, according to his word, 
Baptism is not the path to salvation. I'm just going to dump some stuff outright up front here for a little bit, and then we're going to dive deep into the Word. But baptism, according to His Word, is not the path to salvation. It's also not the means of salvation. It's, it's, it's neither. Baptism is an evidence of salvation, for sure. It's a response to salvation, and it shows obedience to Christ's command to go public with our faith. It publicly, publicly illustrates our intimate association with Jesus. Who we are now is in Christ, and we want everybody to very publicly see that our salvation has placed us in Christ. That's what baptism is. So let me read. If you're in Acts chapter 8, I'm going to read a couple of verses here, and of course we'll unpack more. But uh, Man, I don't have my glasses, but I think I can pull this off. Uh, verse 35, chapter 8, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The scripture is Isaiah 53. We'll come to that in a minute. Uh, 36, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. Let me pray. Lord, your word is amazing. Thank you for the privilege of opening it, reading it, sharing it, preaching it. But I pray, Lord, that at no time does it ever become my word. I pray, Lord, that your word always speaks as your word from your mouth, regardless of if my mouth is the one open. And I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, you may not know it, you may know it, I don't know if you know me, you know it, but I've loved doing prison ministry for years. I haven't done any recently, but I've done it for about 20 years, and uh, one of the coolest things about doing prison ministry is when somebody wants to be baptized, and uh, there are some facilities that will let you do that. Uh, over the years, I don't know, I've baptized a lot of guys, but I remember one in particular that, uh, I, I won't tell you about his past, but just suffice it to say that he had a really bad past and was doing a lot of time but he'd given his he'd been with me a while been with him a while he'd given his life to christ and he wanted to be baptized and so when the facility gave us an opportunity we did it and uh, i will never forget you know there were other inmates there watching and and uh we you know he went down in the water and raised him up when he came up they're all cheering and clapping and then the guy throws himself back down into the water and then comes back up really suddenly and water flings up everywhere. He throws his hands up in the air and he's shouting amens and the crowd's shouting and everybody's laughing and just there's so much joy in the moment, which is the way baptism should look, honestly. So much joy in the moment. And, you know, he said he went back down just to make sure he got all the way under, you know. He was kidding. He was cutting up. He was just full of joy in the moment. He understood baptism, I know, because we talked a long time about it. But it does bring up a good question. If you believe baptism saves you, which he didn't, but if you believe that, then you've got to ask some tough questions. You know, did you go all the way under? Do you have to go all the way under? What if your finger was still out? I'm not trying to be silly, but if it's salvation, if, if, if heaven and hell are on the line, you better make sure. Is it going to mess up if your finger is still out of the water, you know? Does the water's clarity matter? Does it have to be crystal clear water? Does it have to be super pure? Does a priest have to come and bless it first, you know, but like holy water or something? Does a priest have to do the baptism? Does it only got to be done by somebody who's approved to do it? Does a, does the, 
a one-time baptism work? Is that good enough, or do you have to have a few? Is one going to be good enough to last you no matter what happens, or you got to get an update? Now, I'm not trying to laugh at it, but these are real-life questions, you know. So, again, before we jump in, let's just be real practical. What is baptism? What does it mean? What does it do? Why do we do it? What? How does it relate to salvation, you know? For us, we're a Baptist background as a church, so for us, baptism is very important. It is a, a kind of the means in the membership of the church. It's not a rite of passage. It's just saying that you have put your faith in Jesus already, and you've been baptized to testify to that out of obedience, and so therefore we would bring you into our family. Or you're saying that I am a believer and I want to be baptized, and then we would baptize you, bring you into the family. So baptism is kind of the first step of obedience that we would say Christ said do, and after that, then you're ready to be part of the body, the church. You're already part of the body of Christ because you've been saved. The baptism is the first step of obedience, and that that's how we, and we'll get into that because we'll talk about church next week, but... Baptism is an opportunity in and of itself. Baptism is an opportunity to testify to what you believe. To testify to what's already happened in you. It's a response to Jesus' command. And it's our opportunity to be associated with him in a very visual and public way. Baptism does not save you. Baptism does nothing to save. Baptism does nothing to save Baptism does nothing to save. I don't know how many times I can repeat that. Uh, it portrays what's already happened. It's just showing, displaying what's already happened. We're making a public statement that we've surrendered to Christ to be like him. We are making it a public statement that we are aligning ourselves with Christ. We're portraying for others to see. It's, it's, a, it's a, almost like a play. We're portraying for others to see that we've died with him. Just as he went into the grave, into the dirt, we go into the water. That's what immersion in water. You can't live in water, you can't live in the dirt. So it's a portrayal of us dying with Christ. And then when we're raised out of the water, it's a portrayal of his resurrection, of him being raised in new life. It symbolizes that we go down with him into death and that we are raised to new life in him. Our old self left in the grave, our new self raised with him. It's symbolizing that. It's like a wedding band on your finger. And I don't have one on my finger because uh, it gets too tight and it freaks me out. But I have it tattooed, so don't hate. It's I, I'm, I'm marked. So, But anyway, a wedding band doesn't mean you're married. You're already married. Whether I'm married still. Whether you have a wedding band on or not doesn't mean anything. But what it does is it testifies to the fact that your heart belongs to somebody. You want other people to see that, to testify to the fact that your heart belongs to someone, and that is baptism. So outline really quick the way we'll look at this. Baptism is evidence, association, and obedience. That's it. It's evidence, association, and obedience. Baptism is evidence of a changed heart. Baptism displays your association with Christ, and baptism is an act of obedience to Christ. We're going to look at three passages quickly. Uh, Acts 8, Romans 6, and Matthew 28. Mostly we'll camp here in Acts 8, but we'll pull the other two in um, for the other for, as we go. So, baptism is evidence of a changed heart. Let's start there in Acts chapter 8. Look at verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, who was a disciple of Christ, and this is after Jesus' resurrection and 
ascension. It says, rise and go to the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. It's, it's a, a desert road, literally. It's the same Gaza as today. The Gaza Strip, same place. Uh, west of Israel, it's on the, you know, the joint there with Africa in the Middle East. Verse 27, and he rose and he went, so no delay, doesn't waste any time, gets up and goes. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official, a powerful person, obviously, if he was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. So no small title this guy has. He was in charge of all of her treasure, so he's also a wealthy person. Very important, very wealthy person here. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Excuse me. So that's telling you that worship would have happened at the temple. So that's telling you that he's a devout Jew, to say the least. Now, is he, I'm not, he's African, but I, I'm saying he's, at the least, he's committed to the Jewish faith to the point of coming to the temple to do worship, um, probably during a holy week of some kind. Verse 28, and he was returning seated in his chariot. This wouldn't have been like the chariots you see where the soldiers are standing there racing around. This is like a carriage. More like a stagecoach in our, our world, but fancy, you know, a carriage, that kind of thing. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah. That word reading there portrays out loud. So he's, he's projecting, he's reading out loud the prophet Isaiah. So obviously this is an educated guy. This scroll, it would have been a scroll he had of Isaiah. It wouldn't have been cheap. It wouldn't have been easy to get either. They didn't have bookstores in Jerusalem, you know, scripture bookstores. They didn't have printing press to run off copies. So this would have been a handwritten copy. And all scripture was kept in the temple. So he would have got it from the temple somehow. Uh, it would have been no easy task. It wouldn't have been cheap, but he had it. And this is a common road. Uh, a popular road that he's on. So there's likely others that are traveling down it as well. And because of who he is, he's probably got a caravan traveling with him. Uh, and so likely he's reading it to them. Maybe they're wanting to know, hey, read this scroll. You've got it. Maybe they think it's some kind of uh, sacred something. I don't know. But that's likely who he's reading it to. Verse 29 says, the spirit told Philip, go and join the chariot. So Philip was told to go. He goes. He now can see the chariot ahead. And the Spirit of God tells him, go. Has the Spirit ever done that to you? Ever convicted you that you need to talk to somebody? Maybe it's somebody that you're not, you know, it just comes to your mind as though an angel whispers it in your ear. You need to go talk to so-and-so. And then when you get in the same vicinity, the Spirit says, do it. Go right now. Or maybe you're in a place already and you see somebody sitting there that you don't even know. I don't know. And this Holy Spirit speaks to you and says, you need to talk, tell them about Jesus. You need to talk to them. Did you do it? Did you do it? Notice that Philip didn't know that this Ethiopian was reading the word. Look at verse 30. It says, so Philip ran to him and then heard him reading. So Philip's hearing the Holy Spirit say, go speak to him. I'm sure he's trying to think, okay, well, what do I say? It says he ran over there. So he didn't waste any time, but I'm also sure he's thinking, uh, how am I going to get this started? How am I going to start the conversation? What do I say? I know I've been on that one a bunch of times. How do I get the conversation started? What's my going to be my icebreaker? You know, whatever. Now, I didn't have to worry about that. Look what happens. He heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked. God's already got the door open for him. And he asked, do you understand what you're reading? What a great evangelism approach. Do you understand the word of God that you're reading? Do you understand the Bible? Could you ask somebody that, though? You better be able to answer them. You better be able to explain it. 
If you can't explain it, then that's what being a disciple is about. Making disciples is about equipping you or equipping disciples to handle God's word and to teach and train others to do the same. That's it, right? So verse 31, he said, how can I, unless somebody guides me, how am I supposed to? And he invited Philip to come up and sit down with him. What an awesome picture of tiny little microcosm of making disciples. Come up and sit down with me, travel with me a while, and teach me God's word. Teach me how to see Jesus in God's word. Teach me to know God through his word. Travel with me a while and do that. So verse 32 The passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. It's from Isaiah 53. It says, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before his shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. If you haven't read Isaiah 53, you really need to. It, in my opinion, is the best picture of the gospel in the Bible, certainly in the Old Testament. And that's just my opinion, but it's fantastic. So Philip has been invited to talk to this man about Jesus, and he's sitting down with him. But notice what Philip does not do. Philip doesn't tell him awesome illustrations, awesome stories. Notice Philip doesn't even tell him his testimony. Philip doesn't even tell him his testimony. The center of the whole conversation is God's word. God's word. Verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? What a great question. Is this about, uh, excuse me, he's not saying what is this about, he's saying who is this about? He's not saying what is this about, he's saying who is this about? He's seeking a person here. And what's wild is the person is actually seeking him. Remember, God sent Philip to him, which is a great truth to remember. You can just give somebody God's word and trust them to read it. And God will assign, might be you, it might be somebody else, but someone to help them understand. Don't you believe God can do that? You don't have to say, well, I'd love to give them the word, but man, they'll never understand it. Listen, give it to them. Trust God in that, right? Verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does this prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news, the gospel about Jesus. So he didn't just, not just the one thing, he goes through all the scripture, or well, he goes through more scriptures anyway, and he tells him about the gospel, the good news about Jesus, which that's what good news means, gospel. So he didn't say, let me tell you how this applies to your life. He doesn't say, let me tell you what you need to do with this in your life. He doesn't say, let me tell you how to find success with this passage. He doesn't say any of that. He points him straight to Jesus. Let me show you how this talks about the Old Testament. Let me show you Jesus here. All you got to do is open it and point them to Jesus. They're going to see Jesus. Now, they may not see you. They may not see a success story for their life, although it might happen. They're only going to see Jesus, right? And... Philip shares the gospel here. It requires him opening his mouth. He has to speak. It's not Philip's great lifestyle that he sees the gospel through. It is not Philip's positive uh, attitude. It's not that Philip doesn't cuss and goes to church and doesn't, it doesn't uh, 
you know, drink. It's none of those things. It's, it is Philip opening his mouth and speaking and telling him the gospel. It's the gospel that impacts this African. So what is it? What is the good news here? Good news about what? Well, first let me ask you another question. Do you believe God will accept you? Right now. Do you believe God will accept you? If you died in 10 minutes, no, if you died in 10 seconds, and you're standing in front of God 10 seconds from now, creator of the whole universe, will he accept you? Will he welcome you? Why? Whatever your answer is, why? Based on what? How can you know that? You know, is there wickedness in your life? But do your bad things outweigh your good things? Or do your good things outweigh your bad things? You good? You know, or is that even what he's looking for? Are you sure that's what he's looking for? The good news is that you can know right now, you can know right now that your sin no longer defines you. You can be set free right now from your sin. You can know that if you stand before God in 10 seconds, you're forgiven. You can know that right now. You can know right now that you are one of his children. Right now. That's the good news. Why? How? Because sin was nailed to a cross. Your sin was nailed to a cross. That's what Isaiah 53 is talking about. How God provided salvation for those who were rebellious like sheep that had gone astray. He took their sin and placed it on himself, the Son of God, and took it to a cross, suffering in their place. That's what it's about. That's the good news. John 3.16, Jesus said it in his own words, the gospel, the good news, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why? Because the world's already condemned. He didn't send Jesus to condemn the world. It was already condemned. The world is full of sin. You know this. I know this. It's no surprise. We all know it. He sent Jesus to save us from sin. That whoever believes in him has eternal life. He goes on, he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son. Notice it doesn't say baptized, it says believed. And it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Right now, that's the case. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Is your faith in him. The power of the gospel is that Jesus frees you from the curse of sin. By placing your faith in him, by believing in him, you're admitting that no amount of good is ever going to offset the amount of sin in your life. Basically, you're saying, I'm done. I admit I'll never be good enough. I know it. I'll never be good enough. But I'm trusting that what you did on the cross was good enough. You're saying that his sacrifice was for your sins too. And you're admitting that you're a sinner and trusting that you're giving your life to him. And that when God looks at you, God will see him. That sin is now cast away from you because God looks on the cross and sees that it's paid in full by Jesus. That's the good news. The good news is that you no longer need to worry about if God accepts you. He does. If your faith is in Christ. Not because of anything you did. Because of what he did. Because of what he did. And the good news is also that you no longer have to fear death. 
You don't have to fear death anymore. Not because you won't face it, but because Jesus conquered it. So just like it couldn't keep him, it no longer can keep you. Again, whoever believes in him, if your faith is in him, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Not saying that you got to repeat some phrase. He's just saying that if you can open your mouth and testify to the fact that Jesus is Lord of your life, doesn't mean you have to get a crowd together. It doesn't mean that. It's just saying if your mouth is able to speak the words, Jesus is Lord of my life, based on the fact that your heart also believes that to be true and you believe that he is alive today having defeated sin and death, if you believe that, then you'll be saved. As black and white says it in God's word, we believe that to be true. That's who we are. Notice too, there's no mention there of baptism. Just saying. He goes on in verse 11 For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. What that means is not that people won't attack you or shame you or embarrass you. It means he will not betray you. He's not going to hang you out to dry. If he says he's going to save you, he's going to do it. It's going to happen. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Can you call on him? What's preventing you from calling on him? Gospel doesn't need powerful speakers. doesn't need me to be compelling or to try to convince you or beg you. It doesn't need convincing language or arguments. The gospel doesn't need hype or lights or fireworks or a fancy stage or an amazing worship band or a choir. It doesn't need any of that. It doesn't need miracles. It needs God's word and repentance. Call out to him. Call on his name. That's all it, that's it. Verse 36 of chapter 8 of Acts, back in Acts, verse 36. It says, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, there, here's water. It's this super joyful statement. Oh, my gosh, there's water. Look, 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 look. It's like he's saying, he sees out the window as they're passing. Whoa, 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 stop the carriage. There's water. There's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Why? What's to stop me from being baptized right now? There's water. Well, what happened? Where's the hand on the forehead moment where he throws him on the ground or lays his hand on, you know, where's the fire falling from heaven, the big miracle here? Where's the perfect prayer or the penance? Where's the Hail Marys or Our Fathers? I'm not hating them, I'm just saying. Where's the alms to the poor or whatever it is? None of it's there, man, but something's definitely happened. Verse 37 you probably notice that your Bible skips from 36 to 38. Verse 37 is not in most Bibles uh, in the text. But if you look, there's probably a little marker. And at the bottom, it probably has it there. Because some manuscripts have it and some don't. And that's why they... But it's there. They're not hiding anything from you. It's a little note at the bottom of your Bible. But if the verse were in there, it reads, If you believe with all your heart, you may, Philip said. And he, the eunuch, replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So whether it's in there or not, clearly he made that decision because he's ready to be baptized and excited and overjoyed about it. He wants to be faithful to Jesus. The evidence, the evidence 
of the change in this African man is his excitement over seeing water and his joy over having the opportunity to be baptized. And just to prove uh, one example, there's several, but I can give you a quick example of someone who uh, was saved but was not baptized. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. One of the criminals, Jesus, remember, is crucified, and there's one on each side of him. One on one side said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Mocking him. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we were receiving the due for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. So look what this man's heart is saying. First of all, he's saying, do not fear God. He's implying that Jesus is God, or at the very least, sacred and connected to God. He is saying that there, he is righteously under condemnation. In other words, he's admitting that he's a sinner, and he deserves the death that he's getting, all right, for his sins. He is admitting that Jesus is innocent, He's admitting, admitting that Jesus is a king, a Messiah, a king. He says he's going to come into his kingdom. He's also recognizing that Jesus will go on, that this is not going to be the end for Jesus, that death can't stop him. He's admitting that too. And he's asking Jesus to remember him, meaning that he knows Jesus has the power to save him. He's saying all of that, and Jesus responds by saying, today you'll be with me in paradise, or you are saved by your faith. No baptism happens. No baptism happens. All right? So baptism is evidence of a changed heart. Baptism displays your association with Christ. Back on that story really quick, notice that this guy does go public with his faith, though, because he does, whether he's being baptized or not, he does publicly say these things, rebuking the one guy and saying it. He's hanging there on the cross, but he's making a statement of aligning himself with Christ. Verse uh Acts 8, verse 38, the eunuch commands the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. No waiting, no planning. Let's go right now. And I like that they both went in the water. I know nowadays often we stand outside the water to baptize or whatever, which is fine. I'm not saying this wrong. I just love the picture there. They both go down into the water. Um, But uh, remember, this is a popular road. He's an important person. There's a whole lot of witnesses here seeing this. He's bringing them all down. He's going public in this moment that he's associated with Christ. All right. Romans 1.16, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for those who believe. It is the power of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's making it known here in a very public and visual way. Yes, he was African. All right. Yes, he was in Jerusalem worshiping among the Jews. Yes, he was reading scriptures of the Jews. And though Jesus was seen as a fraud by the Jews for the most part, yes, he's now recognizing those scriptures are about that radical Jewish rabbi. He's been crucified years ago. He knows the story. 
And he's heard the stories and the rumors of his resurrection, and he now completely, fully believes that based on connecting Jesus with Scripture. He knows that he is who he says he is. He believes Jesus is alive. He believes he's risen from the dead. And he's realizing, again, from Isaiah 53, that he bore his sin. This African man's sin was born on Christ as well. He's recognizing that. Now he's officially decided that he is a follower of this Jewish Jesus Believing him to be God, who he says he is, and he wants everybody to know it. It's like when we say, I'm so in love, I want to go shout it from the rooftops, or I want to go to the highest mountain and tell everybody, you know. Same kind of thing. His baptism was a very public way of making his decision known to everyone, and he was very excited to do it. Paul explained how being baptized illustrates our association with Jesus. In Romans chapter 6, and he does it very well. And I won't unpack all this. I'll just read through it. But uh, verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, immersed in water, into Christ here, though he's saying all of us who have been baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See what he's saying here? Death is necessary because our old self wants to rule. The wicked, old, evil David still wants to rule my life. I know this because I still sin. Uh, but I don't go near as far as I could because he no longer has control, but he wants it. it, it there, There is a... A sinful person within us, and death is necessary because that person wants to rule still. And Jesus said it himself. He said, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross, which if you get on a cross, you're going to die. <coughs> Excuse me. He said, you must hate your own life. These are Jesus' words, not mine. He says that if you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life uh, to him, then you'll gain eternal life. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. He said, I die daily. It's, it's in there. That's the whole picture of what's going on. If we hope to have a new life, then the old life has to die. All right? And that's what Christ has given us in the cross and resurrection, is an opportunity for our old self to die on that cross with him and a new life, him who rose from the dead, for us to do the same. Excuse me. Verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Not saying that you want sin. It just means that you're no longer bound to do it. You're not enslaved to do it anymore. You're free from the curse of it. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. There it is. You're no longer under the curse of sin anymore. Not sinless, but Romans 7, he makes clear that he still has battles. Okay, so But he goes on. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So the same is true for us. Immersion in water is not to wash away sin. It's not cleaning sin off of you. Because, as Paul just made clear, we are dead in sin. Dead. Dead things don't need to be clean. Uh, we need new life. Not clean. We need new life. 
it is it symbolizes total death. We can't live underwater, and being raised from the water symbolizes two things: an anticipation of a resurrection of our physical bodies when Christ comes, and a resurrection to life now in Christ, leaving our old self dead in the water. Symbolized there, and there's good reason to celebrate that. Romans eight verse one. Love the verse. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right now, no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. So quickly, the last one. Baptism is evidence of a changed heart. Baptism displays association with Christ. And then baptism is an act of obedience to Christ. All right. Matthew 28 makes this clear. Verse 19. You ought to know this well. Uh, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Jesus said to his disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's a clear assumption here that he's sending them to baptize. That means that they therefore have been baptized. would make no sense for it would be meaningless for him to say go baptize if he had not or if they had not been baptized in the first place. Look at those commands. Go make baptize. It's an act of obedience to Christ. It's a command to go public and then to lead others to do the same through baptism. Uh, Ephesians 1 verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit, the, sal- the sealing of salvation, it doesn't come as a result of baptism. Nowhere does he mention that in Ephesians chapter 1. Yet in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, when the Holy Spirit descends and the uh, disciples are full of the Holy Spirit and first begin to preach and the crowds hear it and they begin to say, they get convicted and they say, what must we do to be saved? Verse 38 of Acts 2, Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. So, repentance, baptism, faith, baptism, and salvation, they go hand in hand, but in the order of salvation and then baptism. Because again, as he said in Ephesians 1, it is when you read the word and believed you were saved. That's when it happened. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them, identifying them with the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a command here. It requires obedience. It's a first step in response to claiming faith in Christ. It's not a magic spell. It's not use the right words or it won't work. It's not about what are working. It's a response to what's happened, a choice to display that his identity has become our identity. And Peter and Jesus both urged people to do it as soon as possible because the importance of identifying publicly with him uh, it was about obedience, yes. It was about publicly dying to self, yes. It was about saying, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me, yes. But the beautiful thing is, it is instant accountability. People now recognize that you have associated yourself with Christ, and you are now accountable to them because they will be watching. So how do we respond to this? Well, it's real quick and real easy. Get baptized. No, seriously, though, if you haven't been baptized, we would love to do that. If you're here in Tempe, Arizona, hit us up. Let's talk. We would love to, to do that, to, to encourage you to make that first step. Um, if you have been baptized, make sure you understand what it means and use the picture of baptism in your own life in, God, in and through God's word to share it with others, to help them see the gospel. 
And that's the thing is, the gospel is so beautifully illustrated in baptism. So beautifully illustrated in baptism. So we got to begin there. If you're not a believer, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, we need to start with the gospel. Can you trust Jesus? Can you admit that no amount of good on your part is going to outweigh the bad? Can you tap out? Can you say, I know I'm a sinner and I failed. And Christ, I trust that your cross is enough. Christ, I trust that you are alive. And I trust that you will save me by faith and put your faith in him. Can you call him Lord? If you can, do it. The Bible says you will be saved. And then be baptized. Holler at us if you're here. Or find a pastor somewhere close to where you are. Somebody that can walk you through it and and do it. Lord, I love you. Your word is awesome. Thank you for the privilege of being in it, preaching it, and leading others through it. God, I pray that you help us be faithful to your word. And I pray if you save someone today, Lord, that they would call us and let us know for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.